Well, it is good to see you. Good to be here at Timberlake this weekend. My name is Dave, and I am from Wisconsin. So we're about an hour north of Chicago and about a half an hour south of Milwaukee, a tropical paradise of epic proportions. It's awesome. And uh, it is great to see you. Today, we are launching a brand new series called Deep Water Faith. And it is a series where over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the more challenging, complex, really uh, thought-provoking topics that are in the Bible, the theological topics. And so you can imagine why Pastor Ben asked a guest to kick off this series, right? It's just, it's going to be a little bit uh, intense here. And uh, I'm going to kick off today by actually not just talking about verses from the Bible or stories from the Bible. I want to be talking about the Bible. And I'm totally stoked about this because you already know the Bible has played a massive, massive role in our world. It's influenced culture at every level. It's influenced our art and our literature. It's influenced our music. It's influenced government. It's influenced politicians. It has had a massive, massive role in shaping our society. In fact, it's such a powerful book, the Bible is, that there are still some places in our nation where people have to swear on a Bible in a court of law as a way of affirming that they promise they're going to tell the truth. For many, it's a book that holds a lot of meaning. It's very sentimental. Matter of fact, when Bob Marley died, he was buried with his red Gibson guitar, a bud of marijuana, and the Bible opened to the 23rd Psalm. There's just something about the Bible that makes us feel a little bit more confident and a little bit like, hey, we're right with God. At the same time, people get superstitious when it comes to the Bible. Emperor Menelik II was an African ruler who helped found Ethiopia. He had an idea about the Bible that it was capable of curing sickness. And so when he was sick, he would actually eat pages from the Bible. 1914, had a stroke and proceeded to eat the entire book of First and Second Kings. His bowels became, as you can imagine, obstructed, and he died as a result of it, so it didn't help him. But he had this idea that there is something supernatural about it. And yet, despite the bizarre stories or the intriguing stories or the weird stories that come out of culture as it relates to the Bible... There's something so unique and special about it that it has ended up on the number one best-selling book of all time for the Guinness Book of World Records. It's, it has sold five billion copies. Every single year, they print another hundred million Bibles. Something very, very special about it. And what's intriguing to me is that as much as the Bible has influenced and shaped their culture, and as much as people love and respect it, and it's defined their life, it's a really difficult book to read. I mean, if you're honest, it, 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 it's complicated. It's confusing at times. It's very easy to get lost when you read it. it it's so massive, right? It, it, it's so large. And it contains so many different topics that sometimes we think it says things that it doesn't. Other times we think it doesn't say something that it does. And so just for fun, and I want the campuses playing along on Sunday morning, but just for fun, I want us to play a little game that I'm just going to simply 
call, is it in the Bible or not in the Bible, all right? And I'll let you go ahead and raise your hand. You can shout things out loud if you want. That's fine. How about this one? Love is a temple. Love is a higher law. It's in the Bible. Go ahead. Oh, nobody thinks it's in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. And then about most of you say, I don't want to even participate. It is not in the Bible. It's U2 song. All right, how about this? Timely advice (laughs) is lovely, like golden apples in a silver basket. Very poetic. In the Bible? Not in the Bible. Wrong. It is in the Bible. Proverbs 25. All right, how about this? God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. In the Bible? No, it's not in the Bible. That's a hymn, but good for you. Two more, two more. As the dog returns to its vomit. In the Bible? Yep, that's in the Bible. So a fool repeats his foolishness. And the final one, take me to church. I'll worship like a dog at the shrine of your lies. Yeah, Hosea, not in the Bible. But this happens all the time. It gets really, really confusing. What's in the Bible? What's not in the Bible? How do you approach the Bible? And so I want to be crystal clear right from the front today. And that is at Timberlake, we love the Bible and we value the Bible. Every week we teach from the Bible. Our growth groups wrestle with issues that are in the Bible. At the info table, we give away free Bibles. Okay, for us, it's a book that matters. Now, on a personal level, this book has made a difference in my life for a very, very long time. At the age of 13, I read through it for the very first time, cover to cover. I was in a program when I was in middle school called Bible Quiz. Stayed through it all through middle school and all through high school. And uh, they actually came out with a documentary on this. So you could probably Google search it. And it's about as strange as it seems. Uh, but I memorized, while I was in Bible Quiz, 11 books of the Bible. And I don't take credit for that because I had no interest in doing that. My mother said, if you do not memorize X amount of verses each night, you will not have dinner. True story. So you could have breakfast and lunch, but you would not eat dinner. And so that was my growing up years. Well, you're in movies and you're making out in cars. I'm memorizing the scripture. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, Then I went to North Central University in Minneapolis. I studied the Bible and for the last 20 years of my life have been teaching from the Bible. So it is a defining story of my life. It guides me. It leads me. I'm inspired by it, motivated by it. But at the same time, I've got questions about it and I've got doubts And there are moments that I certainly have concerns. And if you've ever read the Bible, I'm sure you do as well. And part of the reason I think the Bible is frustrating when trying to wrestle through it is it's easy to forget that the Bible is not a book. The Bible is actually a collection of ancient documents. It's a collection of books. It's a library of books. So the Bible is a library of 66 different books written by 40 different authors in three different languages over the course of 1,500 years. And so if you were to read the Bible from cover to cover, it's not a static view of God. It's not like this picture of God that just remains the same and it is just always communicating the same message. It's much more like a time-lapse photo. And you've seen these before where a photographer will set up a camera in a certain uh, field or a certain uh, part of the city and all throughout the day it'll capture these pictures. Or some will set them up in an area where a couple times a year they'll go out and take a picture from the same uh, setting and there'll be a time lapse of the different seasons that are taking place. 
Well, when you and I read the Bible, specifically if we were to read it from cover to cover, it is a time-lapse photo. It's a picture of the character and nature of God throughout history. It's a picture of how different people groups interact with God. It's an unfolding story of his love and his grace that has been continuing since the beginning of time. And this is so important to remember whenever we approach the Bible because our understanding of the Bible shapes our view of God and influences our behavior. It shapes our view of God. It influences our behavior. The way we think, the way we view God, the things we feel guilty about, the things we get passionate about, many of those things come from the Bible. And so we need to approach it with the proper understanding, all right? It's kind of like this hammer. Hammers, of course, uh, are very good when they're used for their purpose, which, according to Bob the Builder, is building things, and it's constructing things, and it's making things. And if it's used, for, if it's used in a way it's intended to be used, good comes out of it. But if it's used in a way to destroy and smash and break things, well, then something that should have been good now has been used for the bad. And throughout history, the Bible has been used for good. It's been used to encourage people, inspire people, motivate people, teach people, give us an insight of who God is and his plans for our world. But at the same time throughout history, it's been used in some very destructive ways. It's been used to manipulate people and control people. It's been used to shame people. It's been used to justify actions. For a long time in our country, slave owners used the Bible to justify their owning and harsh treatment of slaves. There are remote areas in our country that use the Bible to excuse odd behavior like snake handling. Okay, our friends in eastern Washington would understand that. Uh, certainly, from time to time, we'll see on the news a mom or a dad who uses the Bible to justify not giving their kids proper medical attention because it would be against their beliefs. In fact, last year, Herbert and Catherine Shabel were sent to prison because they lost not one but two children refusing to give them proper medical treatment. One of the kids died from something as common as pneumonia. Now, here's the deal. The Shables are not bad people. They're doing their best to honor God from their understanding of the Scriptures. In fact, just before they were sentenced, Catherine Shabel said this to the judge. She said, we believe in divine healing. My religious beliefs are that you should pray and not have to use medicine. But because it's against the law, then whatever sentence you give me, I will accept. The bottom line is that you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. You can use it however you want to use it. But if you do not use it correctly, it will either hurt you or hurt someone else. Last year, we had a lady in our church who uh, I love dearly, a good friend of mine. We got in a conversation, and the way she approaches the Bible, or approached the Bible, it was as a promise book. And so her idea was that re regardless of what the verse was or the context was, you could pull open the Bible, and if it was motivating and encouraging, it would be a promise that we could hold on to for today. And what was so scary for me is that she had been uh, diagnosed with cancer, and so... 
she was holding on to a bunch of verses that said she would be healed no matter what, as though she was holding God hostage because a verse said something. Now, I know her son, her son is not a follower of Jesus. And I said, Chris, what about your son? What if you talk like this and and then he doesn't see God heal you? She goes, well, he's going to heal me. And she quoted a number of verses, including Psalm 103, that says God forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. And I said, Chris, I love you, but you're not reading that in the proper context. That was written by the second king of Israel, David, and he wasn't writing it as a promise. He was writing it more as an expression of worship. This is an observation. This is the ability God has. He can heal us. And sadly, a few months ago, Chris passed away. But it wasn't because God broke his promise. The Bible was never intended to be a book of promises, even though it contains promises. It's way different than that. Other people approach the Bible as though it's a magic eight ball. Right? Remember these things? You shake them up when you're a kid. You look at it. It's like, oh, I'm going to marry this girl because the magic eight ball told me I was going to. What's well, easy when you're in a season of life that you feel desperate or discouraged to just say, God, enough's enough. Just speak to me. Boom. But that's not how the Bible was intended to be read. Right? What if you open to Job 19? My breath is repulsive to my wife. I'm rejected by my own family. That isn't helpful, right? And then... I took this out of the rental car that I have. It is the owner's manual. A lot of people approach the Bible as though it's an owner's manual. Basically says, here's how things run. Here's how things operate. And from time to time, if you need a tune-up, here's what you need to do. If something breaks down, here is the quick fix. Let me just tell you, it's not that easy. Certainly the Bible gives us some principles on marriage and parenting, and there's great lessons that we can learn along the way. But there are times the Bible reads like a sci-fi book. Not everything fits into an orderly owner's manual. And then there's some who think of it as a love letter from God, which is a great analogy, but there are parts of the Bible that are filled with rebuke or that are filled with some pretty specific instructions on things. It doesn't fit into the category of a love letter. One of my friends who has been going to our church now for several years said to me, uh, Dave, when I think of the Bible, I think of the acronym Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. And I said, oh, dude, I'm not going to mess with your acronym. I said, I get what you're trying to say. I said, but let's just be careful because there's not a lot of basic things in the Bible. And it's not just about instructions, right? Because the Bible's not a textbook. It's not a math book or a science book. Miguel Leo lived in the late 1500s and early 1600s, lived at a time period where it was very common thinking that the earth was stationary and the sun, moon, and stars revolved around the earth. That's just how everybody thought. It makes sense, right? Because I could stand here and I don't feel anything moving. Neither do you, unless you had a few drinks before coming in today, right? Everything feels really stationary, and yet he was influenced by the writings of Copernicus, And he challenged this idea that the earth stood still. He says, actually, I think the earth revolves around the sun and the moon. And people thought he was crazy. They said, you're you're nuts. And worse than that, the church leaders said, man, you are a heretic. They said the Bible teaches differently than that. And they pointed to verses like Psalm 104, verse 5, that says God placed the world on its foundation so it would never be moved. 
They pointed to verses like Ecclesiastes 1.5 that says the sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. And since Galileo suggested something that's not just stood in opposition to common sense, but stood in opposition to the scriptures, he was forced to go before a church court system known as the Inquisition. And for 18 days, he was interrogated over this belief of the earth revolving around the sun. And at the end of the Inquisition, at the end of the court hearings, it was determined he was a heretic. And he was given the option to recant his scientific findings or be burned at the stake. Now, he was a smart man, so he recanted. But of course, he held on to him internally, his beliefs. Now, we could admit this wasn't one of the church's finest hours, but I'll tell you, it had very little to do with whether or not the earth was stationary. I mean, that's how everybody thought at that time. That wasn't that big of a deal. What was a big deal is that the church began to use the Bible in a way it was never intended to be used. And I hope you never forget this. The Bible is never the problem. But the assumptions and expectations we place on the Bible create a lot of problems. If you approach the Bible in a very overly simplistic way, it's an owner's manual, it is a textbook, it's basic instructions before leaving earth. If you have a tendency to approach the Bible in an overly simplistic way and it's written so that we will just be inspired and encouraged and motivated all the time, Let me just tell you, you're going to be incredibly frustrated because there are times that the writings of the scripture get really, really messy. There's things that are written that you would just step back and say, I don't get that. I I don't understand that. And the question I want to ask you today is, what if that's okay? Like, what if the Bible's just fine the way it is? What if it doesn't need to be protected from anyone? What if God's okay with us not having to spray perfume all over it or for anyone to stand guard over what I would call the messiness of it? Because I can assure you, he is okay with it. The Bible is never the problem. The assumptions and expectations we place on the Bible create a lot of problems. You might have grown up being told by your parents, this is all fairy tales. Well, guess what? That's how you're going to approach it. You're going to assume, well, this is all fairy tales. It's all written by by humans just trying to make a profit. Or maybe you grew up in a home where you were told that basically the Bible fell out of the sky and has been glowing and, and, and God himself wrote every single word in here. Well, then you're going to approach it a certain way. As Americans, it's unavoidable. We're going to read the Bible with American eyes, meaning our culture has shaped us. It's every culture in our world will read it as a result of their own upbringing and their own culture. And so sometimes it's important to say, if we're going to teach it, if we're going to read from it, if we're going to want our kids to follow its teachings, then man, we need to remind ourselves of some pretty basic things about the Bible. And that's, that's all we're doing today. And one of the things I think it's important to remind ourselves of when reading the Bible is there is a very human component to the Bible. A very human component. Like I mentioned earlier, there's roughly 40 different authors whose writings make up our Bible. Not a single one of them was ever writing what they wrote 
whether that was history or poetry or prophecy or a letter to a church, none of them were writing any of these books thinking, hey, this is going to be a part of a holy book someday. No, they were just writing history. They were just quoting from important documents in their culture. And what happened over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years is there were church leaders who started to identify some of these writings as sacred. And they said, man, these writings seem to be universal. They seem to have a universal impact. And so for hundreds and hundreds of years, church leaders, not just one, not just two, multiple church leaders would gather together and they'd wrestle through and they'd say, hey, this letter or this book of poetry or this book of history seems to be universal in its impact and its influence. I think this book is sacred. And so for hundreds of years, they wrestled through it until they finally got to a, book, uh, to a collection of 66 different books that make up our Bible. Didn't happen overnight, didn't happen over a couple months, didn't happen over, over a couple years. It took hundreds of years to get there. And then hundreds of years later, someone would step up and say, it's still complicated to read. So let's break it up into chapters and verses and, and let's help make sense of this. And then you have the different books, the 66 different books put into two different segments, the Old Testament, which was everything before Jesus, and the New Testament, everything after Jesus. Now, the Old Testament has 39 books. To the Jewish people, to our Jewish friends, that's just called their Bible. It's the Hebrew Scriptures. But for us, it's the Old Testament and the New Testament, of course, having to deal with Jesus. And it's important when we read this scripture to remember they're all unique books written in unique settings, right? Some in prisons, some in palaces, some in fields. They were written from different continents and different perspectives. And so each of these book is gonna, books are going to have a unique context to them. So when we hear about the Apostle Paul writing letters to churches, which many of the books in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, were letters written to churches. The, the American way of thinking, and we all do it, we can't really help it, is to kind of think of a church like this, right? To, to, to think in regards to big group settings and tons of chairs and people getting motivated. The reality is that most of the churches Paul wrote to were house churches. They, they were churches that held 15 or 20 people. And so when he says, love one another, pray for one another, care for one another, practically speaking, it was possible. They could do it because of the setting of what the church was in at that time period. Every single one of the 40 authors, as they wrote, had an agenda. Now, some of them, their agenda was just to write history. Others of them were to convince people of who Jesus was. Some were to give doctrine and theology, but they all had their own agenda. And their agendas were shaped and influenced by the economic and political and religious cultures of their day. They at times were shaped by the emotions that were going on inside of them. I mean, King David, second king of Israel, writes some of the most profound passages of Scripture. He writes about the mercy and grace and forgiveness of God. He was the one who wrote Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He talks about God being with us at all times, but there were seasons that he went through when he felt an injustice had been done to him. And he talks about slapping his enemies in the face and shattering the teeth of the wicked. He writes things like this in Psalm 109. May his children become fatherless and his wife a widow. 
May his children wander as beggars and be driven from their ruined homes. Wow. Now, this is where we have to understand the human element of Scripture. Did God speak to David audibly and say, write these words? May their, may their children become fatherless. No, David's got emotions going on. He's ticked about it. Some of the things his enemies have done and some of the injustices he sees in the world. And so he's just writing out of just raw emotions. And we know that because there is a filter through which every verse we read really should be read. Right? It's like a colander at your house where you filter when you're making spaghetti or different forms of pasta, really different types of food, where you would pour it in here and filter out things that are unnecessary. Well, when Jesus was talking to some of his followers, he said very candidly, he said, if you were to take all of the scriptures and you were to just boil them down to their essence, it comes down to this, love God and love people. That's it. And so whenever we read the scriptures, I think it's important for us to say, hey, does that reflect loving God and loving people? And if not, I think it's fair to say, hey, David was probably right in these very fierce verses out of his own emotion. It doesn't make them less scripture. It just is a great reminder that, hey, there is this human aspect to it, and it's showing us how he felt in that time period. Love God and love people. That's the filter through which we read the scriptures. So let me just give you another example, and then we'll move on here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are what we would probably consider biographies of Jesus because there's a lot of writing about who Jesus is. These writings did not occur when Jesus was here on earth. They were 30, 40, 50 years later, some of his followers decided they were going to record this stuff. And some of the books, uh, Luke uh, and Mark, were not actually part of the disciples of Jesus, and yet they wrote it. And so the best analogy I can think of in, in helping you understand is a few years ago I read this book uh, on Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. Now, I read this book not to learn about Walter Isaacson, but yet he's the author. And what did he do? He went around and he interviewed the friends and the family of Steve Jobs. He did 40 different, uh, he interviewed 40 different people for this book. And then he interviewed Steve himself. And then he put it all together. Now, it doesn't mean that someone who was around Steve would necessarily say, oh, I saw it the same way. I had the exact same feeling on it. No, he's just saying, hey, from all of my research and from my recollection, this is who Steve was. And Steve could read it and say, yep, that's what happened. And that was there. And thanks for interviewing all the witnesses. So when we read the book of Matthew or the book of Luke or the book of John, we're not even talking one person's recollection. We're talking a bunch of people. this This to me speaks to the validity of scripture. A bunch of people who in unison could say, yeah, that's how we remember it. Yep, we can confirm what they said. But it was written not by Jesus. It was written by his followers about him. And yet they speak to us. And yet they're powerful. At times they convict us. At times they challenge us. Why is that? Because even though there is a very human component to the Bible, there is also a very divine component to the Bible. And as we read scripture and we understand its context and we try to remind ourselves of the time period of which it's being written, it does something to us. Something comes alive. We read this in Hebrews 4. For the word of God is alive and powerful. 
It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. Or marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. What does that mean? It means when we pick up these ancient writings, some of them from thousands and thousands of years ago, they have a way of being a mirror for our own life. They have a way when we read them to say, wow, I see something inside of me that I didn't even realize was there. There's some hurt I need to deal with. There's some pain I need to deal with. It's alive. It's powerful. 2 Timothy 3 says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Paul, when he says, all scripture is inspired, he's saying, man, God was influencing these writers. Their passions are coming through, but yes, some of their opinions are coming through at times and some of their raw emotions are coming through, but God has influenced them. When Pastor Ben gets up to speak or I get up to speak, I would hope that God has influenced our heart. I would hope that through prayer, God has inspired us in a powerful way. Doesn't mean at times we won't get passionate about something or a little bit more opinionated on something, but God has certainly been at work through those talks. And I can say that with confidence because what we teach is out of these influenced and inspired writings. And so when Paul says all scripture is inspired, he's making a theological statement, but he's even going farther than that. And he's helping us understand God can speak to you through these writings. He can instruct you and guide you through the scriptures. I love, I love, I love, I love King David's thoughts on the scriptures. Because he looks at books that you and I tend to get bored reading. The first five, six, or seven books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These are the books he had available to them. They were scrolls. Some of it's interesting writing, and others of it is like, really? It's a lot of details. That's what he had available to him. And yet, here's his thoughts on the scripture. Here's what he writes. Oh, how I love your instructions. I think about them all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are my constant guide. David understood, I can discover God through the scriptures. I can understand how God views the world. I can understand what he values. And so from God's law, I've discovered how life works. Consequently, I can say, not in arrogance, but with confidence, I'm wiser than a lot of those who reject God because he is guiding me through the scriptures. He goes on, he says this, yes, I have more insight than my teachers for I'm always thinking of your laws. I am even wiser than my elders for I have kept your commands. David says, the more I understand about God through the readings of these ancient scriptures, the more I'm not just able to see the dots, the more I'm able to connect the dots. The more I'm able to read between the lines, God continues to increase my wisdom and understanding. Then he writes this, he says, I have refused to walk on any evil path so that I may remain obedient to your word. I haven't turned away from your regulations, for you have taught me well. He says, you've taught me well. It's like God is personally teaching me, which sounds like a huge exaggeration. 
But I hear this all the time from people who read the scriptures. Dave, I was reading Psalms. Dave, I was reading the book of Matthew. Dave, I was reading even at times Leviticus or some of the difficult books of the Bible. And it just felt like God was speaking to me about this because that's what he does through these ancient writings. And then he continues. He says, how sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. What? I mean, how can something that was written hundreds of years before King David was even alive, how can that be a lamp to his feet? I mean, this is in a day and age where they didn't have Ivy League schools. They didn't have Timberlake Leadership College. They didn't have all of these fancy things. And he, David's like, man, I'm a simple man. I've made a lot of mistakes. But God, I need you to speak to me like you have spoken to generations before me. And I just want to say as we wrap this up, I want this for you. I want this for you so bad. I want this for every child. I want this for our teenagers. I want this for you as adults, for God to speak to you, for the scriptures to come alive. And I know our pushback is, ah, it's difficult, it's challenging, it's so complex. How do you always know context? I know it's challenging. But it's also challenging to make decisions in your 20s that follow you into your 30s because you didn't have a guide. It's also challenging to work through the complexities of marriage with your only guide being your friends or the movies we're watching or some books we're reading. We need something more. And King David said, a couple thousand years ago, I've found that to be true. And so I want to encourage you to live with the attitude King David lived with. When he wrote these simple words, I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. My dad did not grow up attending church. He talked about how in his early 20s, he decided he was going to try to read the Bible, and he says it was the most complicated piece of literature I'd ever read. I said, so how did you approach it? He said, everything I could understand, I said, okay, I get it. And everything I couldn't understand, I said, I'll get it next time around. I think that's a great approach. I think it's a great to approach the Bible with a couple of buckets. Like the first bucket would be with a bucket like majority of stuff goes into, the Lord is my shepherd. God came to rescue us from sin. He didn't come to condemn us or to shame us. Most of the scripture just makes sense when you read it. They go into that bucket, but then there's a smaller bucket. You read it and you're like, you know what? It seems like that applied to a group of people years ago to a certain culture, but probably not for us today. A lot of the laws that we'd read in the Old Testament. But then there is that third bucket that my dad talks about, like, hey, I'm going to read through it and I don't get it and I don't understand it. It's complex, so put it in there and I'll get it next time around. What are you doing to move forward? Because if you're not, let me tell you. Let me tell you what starts to happen. Without even meaning to, you start to, when you get away from the teachings of Scripture, I do as well. I start to magnify the weaknesses of others and overlook my own. Because I'm concerned about you, I'm not concerned about me because I don't have a mirror in front of me. When I stop reading the Scriptures, you know what I do? I start reacting to people rather than responding to them. Because I stop seeing them as people made in the image of God. When I avoid this book or collection of books for too long, I tend to hold strongly to my possessions because it is the God of this world and I, I tend to think that this is where I find my meaning. But most concerning, 
when I get away from this book for too long is I tend to evaluate all I see in this world as if this is all there is. But the Bible is an amazing reminder. The collection of documents, this time-lapse photo is an amazing reminder that this isn't all there is. We've got hope. There's a world that we cannot see. And someday, it's going to come more alive to us. Let me pray for you.